By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Following the global financial crisis in 2008 and recent COVID-19 pandemic, government debt levels have risen around the world to unprecedented peacetime highs. The largest increase has been in advanced economies, where the average debt to GDP ratio increased to around 85% from 50%, compared to a rise to around 60% from 40% of GDP in emerging markets. At the same time, surging global inflation has driven central bank policy rates and global bond yields significantly higher raising the cost of government borrowing. So today we ask, is higher government debt here to stay? And what does it mean for sovereign credit and the global economy? I'm William Foster, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture, where we answer the big questions facing global credit markets. For today's show, I'm very pleased to welcome two of my colleagues from Moody's Investor Service who are experts on this topic. Marie Jerome, Global Head of the Sovereign and Sub-Sovereign Risk Group, and my co-host for this podcast, Sarah Carlson, Senior Vice President also in the sovereign risk group. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Cutting to the chase here. Are higher government debt levels here to stay? And how concerned are you about the rise in debt levels? Yeah, thank you. What a what a question, indeed. I'll, I'll answer it in a, in a couple of parts. Um, if we look year to year, uh, no, higher government debt levels are not necessarily here to stay. I'm looking at our forecast, and uh, we expecting that next year, uh, government debt will be lower than this year for about 80 sovereigns that we rate, and that's out of about 140. Uh, that's the same number as this year. So we are seeing year to year, incrementally, when uh, the environment uh, allows uh, some slight decline in uh, in government debt. We are even seeing in a few cases, and I, I stress here the, the few, but in a few cases, significant declines. And we have taken rating actions recently. Uh, two examples will be Greece and Cyprus, where we've seen a, a long-term trend that we think is continuing, and uh, that there is a consensus that the a reduction in government debt is the appropriate policy, and the governments have the means to achieve that. But from a longer-term perspective and a, and a global perspective, yes, for many, uh, the higher levels of government debt that you uh, you explain in your introductory remarks are probably here to stay in that uh, we are unlikely to see very significant reductions. And that is because governments face many demands. Maybe we can go into some uh, details later on in our conversations. Social, uh, economic, uh, environmental, and, and others, many demands on their budget. And they are, of course, uh, operating now in an environment of higher interest rates, higher cost of debt, and that also constrains their ability. And what could change your base case? Are there clear alternative scenarios that you can mark out for us? Difficult to say at a, at a global level. It will be, you know, projections for government that are always very idiosyncratic, really looking at uh, each case is on, uh, on their own. Um, but what could uh, what could change the base case, that broad picture of higher government debt for a long time? Um, there could be, in some cases, positive surprises on the uh, on the economy and the economy's generation of revenue for governments. I think in the past, uh, we've been surprised in some cases by resilience. I think that's uh, something that we uh, a term we use in a number of cases in face of of negative events. 
Um, we could also be surprised on the on the negative side and government that may actually exceed our expectations if uh, the efforts towards fiscal consolidation that we have factored in in our baseline prove to be politically too onerous uh, and that there's an increasing fracture around that. So quite balanced risk, I would say, at this stage, uh, some towards the upside, some towards the downside. Sarah, going to you, returning to the fundamentals here, what do governments have in terms of options of how to reduce debt? What are the potential ways they can go about doing that? Sure. I mean, broadly speaking, there are five main ways that governments can can reduce their debt levels. They can do it through economic growth. They can do it through inflation up to a point. They can do it through deficit reduction, particularly if they're able to run what economists like me call primary surpluses, which means the budget balance, if you take interest payments out of the equation, they can do it through low interest rates, and they can do it through default, though the evidence is in some cases that even default doesn't end up reducing the the overall debt level that much, if at all. There are some other things governments can do at the margins, things like privatizations of state-owned enterprises. But broadly speaking, if you think about it, it's really these, these five main ways, which represent a series of policy and political trade-offs that governments need, you know, each one needs to decide how, you know, what path it wants to take if indeed it does want to make debt reduction a priority. And when you think about the global context today, the since the pandemic, there's been a significant change in the global environment from geopolitical risks to much higher interest rates. Central banks are, are really challenged right now with bringing down inflation. There's just a lot of uncertainty. And the growth outlook, again, is, is uh, by no means clear. Marie and Sarah, both of you, and what, what are your thoughts in terms of how much of an impact do these challenges now have on on different economies around the world? And then there are any particular examples you'd want to highlight where you see um, good things happening and other places where that's going to be more challenging moving forward. You're right. There's really a, a long list that at face value and, and really in practice uh, is adverse to, uh, it's not conducive to really a reduction in, uh, in government debt. Um, I think it's important to distinguish, though, in that in that long list, what uh, governments can control, mitigate versus what is maybe uh, beyond uh, beyond their control. Um, so yes, we do think that interest rates are are higher for longer, uh, and that central banks in general will uh, start easing uh, only somewhat sometime into next year, and even when they do that, that uh, interest rates will not return to the the very very low levels that we were seeing pre pre pandemic. Um, so governments, by definition, nearly will need to factor that in uh, and then see how they want to uh, conduct fiscal policy in that uh, environment. But there are things that uh, is is more towards their, uh, towards their control, whether it is the uh, decisions around the, the role, the shape of fiscal policy, the room for maneuver that can be taken on raising revenue, on targeting uh, expenditure uh, expenditure measure. Uh, and there we think that, and we've seen some examples, as mentioned earlier, of some some governments really using that that that, that these opportunities. So 
ultimately, what we, we're looking at is really definitely all these factors, how they contribute to then the, the five uh, uh, levers or the five ways to uh, reduce that that uh, Sarah mentioned earlier, and to see if over the course of the cycle, then what governments will be in position to uh, reduce government, if not uh, significantly, at least enough to be able to face a future shock. I mean, Bill, one of the things that strikes me when we're talking about this is the way in which some governments that are the exception to uh, this period of uh, you know, sustained uh, high levels of debt uh, are reaping benefits of decisions that they took years ago. Um, not always in easy times. So I don't think you could really call you know, this country is making the most of, of good times. But if I take the example of Greece, well, it really is reaping the benefits of some of the very painful, uh, let's acknowledge that, reforms and decisions that they took during their own crisis that have resulted in um, really quite significant decreases in debt. So, you know, how significant? About 50 percentage points down from the peak. That's five zero percentage points of GDP. Since pre-COVID levels, down roughly 30 percentage points. Portugal, it's a less dramatic example, but but a similar one. You know, debt down again on the, the order of 30 percentage points from its peak, around 14 percentage points of GDP since pre-COVID levels. And if I look at these two countries, one of the things that they have in common is that when they entered the pandemic, uh, they were entering it from a position of a budget surplus. So not a primary surplus, though they were running primary surpluses, like I mentioned earlier, but headline surpluses. So even if you counted the interest payments, and that meant that uh, you know unwinding some of the the measures from from COVID, once they did that, that put them in in a better position. And you can see that in their debt trajectory. And as Marie said, you know, we have we have recently um, upgraded Greece's rating. For example, we have a positive outlook on Portugal's. So there are some some good stories out there, despite these challenges, which is which is really important to highlight. Um, you know, there are many countries that we could look at in more detail, but I think one that definitely stands out when you talk about rising debt levels uh, and debt sustainability is Japan. Um, the Japanese economy um, has you know struggled for, for decades now, but they're changing dynamics. But the debt to GDP ratio is well over 200 percent of GDP, uh, which is really very high when you look at it on a relative basis. But it doesn't seem to have the same effect on Japan as you might think. Uh, certainly, if this this is a uh, you know, different uh, different country and different different dynamics in different parts of the world, why is that, Marie? And can we all be Japan? Yeah, I like the the way you put that question. Can we all be Japan? Um, easy answer, uh, no. And I, I will go even beyond that. Most countries cannot be Japan. Um, uh, so, as you said, yes, Japan's government debt is very high by any standard, 200% of GDP or more. Um, and yet its rating is also high at uh, at A1 uh, because Japan has managed to uh, find a way to uh, service that debt without any any doubt and to do so while maintaining uh, economic and social stability. Why, why cannot all countries, or can most countries not be Japan? Um, 
is that what Japan has to uh, enable that that really very stable uh, debt servicing is uh, first high income levels. Um, that mean that the the call, the demands on the government's budget are probably less than what, what where they will be uh, what they will be elsewhere. Um, very high accumulated levels of wealth. Um, so these these income levels have been sustained uh, over many decades, and that results in in very high wealth levels, wealth that is invested in government securities in a very stable and sticky way. Um, there's an expression for this home bias, uh, and the reason why there's an expression is that it's really such a unique feature that uh, a name has to be given to it. Uh, other countries cannot take that for granted, their wealth may not be there. And even if it's there, uh, other governments cannot take for granted that uh, there will be the, uh, the beneficiaries, if you want, of, uh, of that wealth being invested in, uh, in their securities, in their debt. There is, to the extent that there is one parallel, there's one parallel I like to draw is with the US. US is not Japan, um, but just like Japan can rely on a large pool of domestic savings, the US and a few other reserve currencies can rely on a large pool of global savings. Um, it's uh, There are differences around that, but there's there's really that similarities of a predictable availability of uh, uh, of savings from one source or another. But these are really exceptions, uh, and we recognize them as such in our treatment of, of government debt and fiscal and debt metrics in general. Yes, um, it's really important to point out the reserve currency countries do have a different debt dynamic and perhaps you go more into that later. But in terms of the global picture, when we look forward, do you anticipate at any stage that we will revert back to debt levels that were at the pre-pandemic level or does that even matter from a credit perspective? Sarah, you would, you you mentioned earlier so a few a few examples. I'll I'll start with a, a general statistics. When we look at these 140 plus countries that we rate, it's about 25 percent of them uh, where we do see debt returning to pre-pandemic levels uh, or lower. Uh, and there are again individual uh, narratives around that, but there are two groups that stand out for me. One that Sarah mentioned earlier, uh, European countries that went through a very severe crisis and for a long, long time took measures that were geared uh, primarily at reducing government debt and are still doing that. Uh, and the other is very different group, small group of uh, oil producers like Oman, Qatar, uh, that have seen very significant windfall gains in the last few years and are using uh, these uh, windfall gains to some extent uh, to reduce uh, to reduce government debt. Um, so, yes, for these groups, we have that. For the other three quarters of the sovereigns that we rate, uh, we're not seeing uh, bad debt returning back. But I don't know, Sarah, what do you what do you think? Any other thoughts on this? Well, I come back to to some of the, the comments that Bill was making earlier, which is just thinking about the changed environments in which we're all living with higher interest rates. If you go back to my five ways you can reduce debt, um, interest rates are higher than they were before. So that would be a difficult way to try to get debt down. Um, growth in many countries is lower in um, many advanced economies and uh, some uh, emerging markets as well, growth is lower. 
uh, now than, than it was before. Um, also, some of the global economic trends, uh, deglobalization, for example, can contribute to, to lower, uh, lower growth levels. Um, there are expectations on the part of citizenry in many countries that the government will step in to try to, to shield them from shocks. And you can see this in many wealthy countries in particular, where uh, we saw governments intervene to try to cushion the impact of high energy costs and higher inflation on, on populations. You know, inflation has helped in the last few years, but you know, a country kind of runs out of road at a certain point with, uh, with, with lower inflation. So if you look at these five ways, I mean, there are a lot of headwinds for government's uh, ability to be able to bring debt down. That doesn't mean that they can't, but it does imply uh, sometimes very difficult conversations and, uh, about trade-offs with their electorates if it's a democracy. And so you, I don't think you can say that it can't happen, but it is certainly in a lot of ways more challenging uh, going forward th than it has been in the past. And I think those challenges give rise to that split of percentages uh, that Marie was talking about, about the countries that are able to get debt down relative to pre-pandemic levels. Fully agree with what Sarah just said. Uh, you also asked, does it matter in the end? And it doesn't strictly matter if uh, governments are not returning to the, the very precise levels that we were seeing pre-pandemic. There are no typically tipping points related to uh, debt-to-GDP ratios. But it does matter, and again, uh, Sarah kind of hinted at this, it does matter um, whether a government is able to take make the most of the environment vein. Uh, and the environment vein might be a relatively favorable environment with a period of robust growth, maybe a bit of inflation, uh, or it might be a crisis environment where really there's, there's certain decisions uh, uh, nearly imposed onto them. Uh, and, and that matters because unavoidably there will be another shock at some point in the future. Uh, and the starting point of that shock will uh, determine the government's capacity to support the economy through uh, the shock. You know, one risk I do see um, and that comes up in some conversations is higher government borrowing requirements. So we're talking about higher debt levels, bigger fiscal deficits, uh, result, and, and a higher interest rate environment require the governments to, to pay more on an annual basis for debt service costs. And those higher bond yields filter through the, to the global market, uh, including other issues, including the private sector. So there's this risk that the government could be crowding out the private sector because it has higher borrowing requirements, and it's paying more, it's considered a safer asset. So why would you invest in the private sector if you could just get a safer return from the government? Do you see that as a material risk moving forward? Um, because I think the associated risk there is if the private sector is getting less money, they would invest less in the economy, and that could reduce growth and have a negative spillover effect for debt dynamics. Is that correct? Is that a material risk moving forward? I think it's 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 a risk for some sovereigns, and I'll explain. Uh, it, it's really interesting when you look at the uh, the literature and probably more importantly the evidence on on crowding out. That there is also literature and evidence of crowding in um, government investment, uh, helping catalyzing private sector investment, and and broadly speaking, um, the difference between crowding out and crowding in. Crowding out is more likely. 
when the economy is at full potential. So there's competition for resources between potentially the, the government and the private sector. When uh, the financial sector and the source of financing are restricted, so again, there's competition for these uh, uh, for for financing, um, and when the the government, the investment by the government is a substitute rather than a complement uh, to a private sector, uh, but there's evidence of prodding in when that latter point when uh, governments invest in research and development, invest in in sectors that are early stage and where the private sector may not come in because these sectors are not are not viable, um, but they uh, they can respond to that impetus. So not a, a black and white uh, answer to, to this here, um, but what it means in practice is that we are mindful of crowding, uh, crowding out when in particular uh, in lower income economies with smaller, less sophisticated financial sectors. I think that's where it is, genuine concept. Shifting to longer term risks, climate change obviously is is one of the top risks over the longer term. The IMF has warned that carbon transition, mostly financed through spending, could increase advanced economy public debt to GDP ratios by around 50 percentage points of GDP. At the same time, we've got long term risks like population aging, which will lead to higher pension spending. Um, and of course, raising taxes are, are, are challenging uh, politically around the world. Sarah, how do you see these dynamics playing out over the longer term? Um, are there clear trade-offs here for these long-term trends relative to the constraints that we see for, for government financing? I think I would say a couple of things about this. First of all, you know, we don't label you know, debt or expenditure as being quote-unquote good or bad, but certainly there are ways in which governments can spend money that can be growth enhancing. And if you again, come back to my five ways that governments can reduce debt, something that's growth enhancing, even if it involves some extra expenditure in the long run can be something that actually puts favorable debt dynamics into action. Another point I would make is that a lot of these costs are not something, I mean, 50 percentage points of GDP sound huge. And in the aggregate, it is huge. But these are um, but these are costs that do not have to be borne all at once by governments and where we have some predictability about them. If I take, for example, aging expenditures, we knew we've known that this was coming for a long time, but we have some visibility about how those are kicking in bit by bit, year by year. Another one that wasn't on your list, but I think is also important is defense expenditure. You know, in uh, in Europe and in the US, we've been reaping the benefits of a peace dividend for decades after the end of the Cold War. That's something that's come to an end. So I think there are two points that I would make. One is that some of this expenditure is something that can be growth enhancing, um, but there are still pretty significant calls on the public purse, which then really, again, comes back to this point that I keep making, that governments do have trade-offs uh, that they have to think about and electorates need to decide uh, you know, how they want to, you know, how they feel about those trade-offs. Um, because in many cases, those are not things that are either pain-free or free of changes in people's expectations about what the governments will bring relative to what they've had in the past. Marie, given these challenges, 
for countries where we expect those debt levels to continue to rise moving forward, what are the main risks? Um, one, starting at the uh, at the low end, um, for low-rated sovereigns with a high rising government debt burden, then we are concerned in some cases about uh, about debt sustainability. And that's because that, that high debt burden then uh, leads, contributes to a weak debt affordability, a large proportion of revenue dedicated to uh, to debt servicing. And there comes a point, and that's something that we have seen very tangibly in the last few years uh, in sovereigns uh, being led to default, there comes a point where governments need to decide um, between servicing their debt or spending uh, some of their their budget on essential uh, on essential service so that is a, a genuine concern and we have a significant uh, number of ratings uh, at uh, at the low end of the rating spectrum the other end is one that you know very well bill um and uh one one example of that will be uh, the us but there are other examples including uh, France, for instance, which uh, Sarah knows knows very well too, where there uh, it is more a question. Debt sustainability is not uh, a concern, um, but uh, it is a question about flexibility on the budget. Again, uh, the higher debt burden is financed at higher costs. That means that the debt affordability is eroding, and that introduces some rigidity in the budget. The uh, uh, debt service is earmarked, uh, is an imperative, and that means that then there's less room for maneuver on uh, on the remainder of the budget. Well, we've reached the end of the show. It's been a great conversation. And we always end with our wildcard question, which today will be, what would you say is the most common misconception about government debt? You know, we've been talking a lot about debt to GDP ratios, but I would make a plea for uh, for listeners to bear in mind something else. And Marie just touched on it in her last answer, which is also the interest bill. And there can be a big difference between uh, how a country compares relative to, to others in terms of debt to GDP and the interest bill. I take, for example, France, uh, you know, the country where I live and one that I've spent a great deal of my career thinking about. Um, France has high debt. There's no two ways about it. French debt is going to remain over 110% of GDP through, through our forecast period. But if I look at what we call debt affordability, which is the interest burden, uh, you can look at it as a percentage of government revenues or as a percentage of GDP. France actually uh, has a lot of debt, but it's actually quite affordable. It's a bit less affordable going forward than it was in the past. But again, if I compare it to similar kinds of countries, um, even a country with a lot of debt can have quite affordable debt because of the role in, that it plays in the capital markets, also the structure of the debt, et cetera. So I, my plea would be for, uh, for, for, for people to not just focus on that headline debt to GDP number but also look at a few other data points because I think it adds a bit more nuance to the conversation. Marie, you have the final word. It's not only about debt to GDP. Yes, we do uh, watch and, and forecast very carefully uh, debt to GDP. It is an important metric, uh, but it is, and I think we've discussed this uh, in, in today's conversation, it is about why the debt to GDP ratio is what it is. What is this debt financing? 
uh, to Sarah's point, uh, what are going to be the economic and social returns uh, of the uh, the investment that the, the government is financing through debt? Uh, what is the, the room, what is the flexibility that the government has to uh, bend the debt to GDP line and, and try to slow it down at different points in, in the cycle? So we really look at this uh, from many different angles uh, to, to make sure that our projections for debt to GDP are as, as robust as possible. Um, but it it's uh, it goes well beyond one single metric. Marie and Sarah, thanks very much for your insights. It's been a pleasure to have you as guests. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm William Foster, and this is Moody's Talks, The Big Picture. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.